If you've ever been to London, you probably know what it's like down in the underground. Imagine, if you can, the long and dingy platform of a London underground station. The dim light, peeling adverts, the shabby tunnel walls. You're waiting near the end of the platform, hardly any other passengers around, when a homeless man, who's obviously drunk, spots you and starts coming towards you. He's a small, skinny man with a big nose and a strong Irish accent. A real, live wire. Uneasily, you move away and you try and avoid eye contact. You take a few steps closer to the end of the platform. But he keeps pestering you and you keep moving away until you're stuck near the very end of the platform. You hear the train coming and you hope that you can soon make a speedy exit. Then, just as the train is about to burst into the station, a sudden gut-wrenching shove in the middle of your back sends you flying out onto the tracks in front of the oncoming train. The last thing you see is the train driver covering his eyes. You're listening to episode two of The Nobody Zone, a podcast series in six parts brought to you by RTE's Documentary on One in Ireland and 30 Productions in Denmark. My name's Tim Hinman. Last time, I left you with the bizarre and puzzling case of an unknown serial killer. You put yourself in my shoes, right? Yeah. You broke killer gazer, and years go by, and you do another few, right? And you're not captured. So what do you do? Think. What do you do then? Kieran Patrick Kelly. An alcoholic, homeless Irishman sleeping rough on Clapham Common in southwest London in the 1980s. Are you with me now? Arrested one afternoon for stealing a man's ring and a wristwatch, only to later that same day brutally kill another man with whom he was sharing a police cell. So what do you do? Think. What do you do then? If you captured Bang to Rights, you mean? Bang to Rights, what do you do? When interviewed, he let go of an avalanche of spectacular confessions. Confessions to murder, stretching back 30 years. He told police about maybe 13, 14, or as many as 15 murders. What you're telling us then, it's been playing on your mind for some time. You then decide to come clean and tell us all the truth. Yeah. And that is right, is it? That's right. And that's what I've done. All the killings Kieran Kelly confessed to had gone almost completely unnoticed. Just sit down and have a, have a quick count-up in your own mind about the ones you think you have killed, about the ones you think you might have killed, and how many you're sure you've killed. And then he disappeared from the limelight as one of Irish and British criminal history's most prolific serial killers. I said at the end of the last episode that the Kelly story is a bit bizarre. 
I'm certain that if you listen through to the end of this episode, you'll start to understand why. Because Kelly finally did make the headlines. It was more than 30 years after he murdered that man in the police cells, more than 60 years after he claimed his first victim by pushing him in front of a train on the London Underground. In 2015, this happened. Was the underground once stalked by a serial killer? The Express features claims made in a recently published book that Scotland Yard covered up the truth about a suspected serial killer. We, as in us Irish, have a serial killer on our hands. The killer that got away with it time and time again. Uh, there's a new book out called The London Underground Serial Killer. It's written by a retired detective, Jeff Platt. The reason for the new stories? A sensational new book written by another former police officer who had actually known Kelly. This was not one of the two detectives we heard on the tape in the last episode. This is another policeman, one who wasn't yet qualified as a detective back in 1983, but who had worked on the Kelly case. In his book, he explains how he took Kelly into his confidence. An incredible story, I read it last night. So who is this Irish man? Kieran Patrick Kelly was born in uh, Rushdown, outside County Leash, outside Dublin, uh, in uh, 1923. This is the author, Jeff Platt. He's being interviewed on The Ray Darcy Show on RTE Radio 1 back in 2015. And then you were in a room when two senior detectives interviewed him. That's right, yes. Yes. And um, he then confessed to what? He confessed to 16 murders, including the one that he just committed in the cell. In the last episode, retired Detective Inspector Ian Brown said that Kelly had put his hands up to 13, 14 or 15 murders. 13, 14, 15 murders. Platt puts that original number at 16, but he doesn't stop there. In fact, 16 is only really half the story, because Kelly also confessed directly to Jeff Platt himself, to another whole set of murders that went completely undetected. These murders had been committed at random on the London Underground by pushing complete strangers in front of tube trains. The new book put the total murder count for Kieran Patrick Kelly at around 24 killings. And then the book revealed something astonishing. The reason no one had ever heard of these killings. Jeff Platt reveals that the Home Office had put deliberate pressure on the Metropolitan Police to make sure this story never got out. The Kelly story was a cover-up a former detective, Jeff Platt, alleges that Kieran Kelly confessed to carrying out the killings between 1953 and 1983, but was never prosecuted as the authorities feared invoking mass panic and public condemnation for allowing him to get away with multiple murder for three decades. He says the Home Office told the police not to make the information public. I've never heard of anything in, on this sort of scale 
and this nature of, of callous pushing somebody in front of a tractor brutally murder them, it's, it doesn't sit right with me, so there's a lot of questions need to be asked. A lot of questions now needed to be asked. This was the then chief of the London Metropolitan Police, Sir Bernard Hogan Howe, being cornered on a London radio talk show. Apparently the detective was told that it was something to do with the Home Office not wishing to spread panic, but I do wonder if it's an investigation you might consider reopening then. Uh, well, first of all, that's an odd reason. I, I find that not very persuasive, if I'm honest. I just don't believe... Well, I can't say I don't believe it. I just find it... I'd take some persuading about it as a reason. But uh, we have said that we'll contact him and let's see if we can get to the bottom of what he's said. On the back foot... And with the media demanding answers to new sensational allegations, he has to do something. So now, the Kieran Kelly case was open again. Newspaper headlines and news stories moved around the world in a flash. Listen, people were all over it. The media were all over it because cover-up of murders on the underground going back decades and a serial killer in London who was Irish. This is journalist and documentary maker Robert Mulhern. My name is Robert Mulhern. I'm a reporter, producer based in London. It was just around the time the story broke all over the world that Rob first got to hear about it just like everyone else. People picked up the story and they ran with it. Of course they ran with it. The past record of dubious even faulty police investigations and cover-ups has been a regular feature in the media in recent times. This looked like yet another scandal looming. You know, it was a cover-up and this Kelly was operating at a time when, you know, Irish people in the city weren't necessarily getting a fair rap. Now, Irish people often didn't get a fair rap in the UK in the 1970s and 80s. This was the time of a violent bombing campaign by the IRA in Britain. There was prejudice against Irish workers in the UK seeking work in a time of recession and super high unemployment on both sides of the Irish Sea. There was a deeply confrontational atmosphere from the British government under Margaret Thatcher. The police did falsely accuse Irish people of serious crimes and imprison them in this period. The most famous cases being the Birmingham Six and the Guildford Four. Just look them up if you want to know just how badly Irish people could be treated in the UK back then. So, for a homeless, alcoholic, Irish transient worker like Kelly, and maybe much more importantly, for a homeless, alcoholic, Irish transient victim of Kieran Kelly, you might well not be getting a fair rap back in 1983. And why wasn't this spotted? You know, the, the, the fact that there was a recurring witness. Surely alarm bells should have rang. At first, Rob just read the story and listened to the Ray Darcy interviewed like everyone else, surprised and puzzled. 
The story of a serial killer hidden from sight by the authorities. What happened was that the investigation was completed over a couple of months. A report was sent up to the Director of Public Prosecutions in London. It's his decision on what charges will be preferred. They decided that it was in the public interest not to broadcast the story. Rob made a decision to dig deeper. Dig deeper than the newspapers and all the regular media channels had done. To try and get to the bottom of the Kelly story. They felt that uh, people who heard this story may start to panic, people wouldn't want to use the underground. So he got right on it. The story felt so remarkable that I couldn't really figure how I'd never heard about this guy and how had this gone undetected for so long. But of course, when I started listening to the narrative that was being put out there, it did sound plausible that you know, the story had been buried, um, and that was really kind of the entry point. It was just, that was the tread, and uh, we just started pulling it. Rob Mulhern is a man with connections in Irish London. The first thing to do for Rob was to find out what was known about Kelly on the Irish grapevine in London. Irish people are tight in London. Generally, we know what other Irish people are up to, um, especially if they're committing murders. I took out my contacts book and like, there's a lot of older, senior Irish people in the city who I felt were of a similar age to Kelly, like priests who would have dedicated their lives to helping homeless people in areas of London that Kelly would have inevitably been around. Um, you know, every one of them was coming back saying it was news to them as well. They hadn't heard anything about it, so... The alleged cover-up seemed to have been so successful that Kelly and the long list of murders connected to his name really had disappeared without trace. You know, how could this guy not figure on the landscape in Irish London? And he didn't. What's more, as Jeff Platt made his appearances on TV and radio, he claimed that seven more cases had now come to light. He'd been contacted by families of alleged suicides on the underground from the period in which Kelly was active. Seven more. So Kelly's now being connected to 31 murders. It's been several weeks since the story first hit the headlines and the media buzz has died down. But the police and official channels can't really offer much help to Rob as the case is now open and under investigation. So the only p person really who I felt I could go to at that point was Jeff Platt. Next step for Rob? To talk to Jeff in person. He had gotten as close as anyone could ever hope to get to one of the world's most prolific serial killers. But there's a problem, because Jeff Platt is a hard man to track down. So after I called the publishing company and they say, yeah, listen, leave it with us, we'll get in touch with Jeff. I'm sitting there and after a few days of hearing nothing back, I'm thinking, you know, this is strange because when I Google Jeff's name or when I put his name into YouTube, he does pop up not just in one place but lots of places you know he's been doing lots of media but at the same time he hasn't gotten back to me and he's just written a book and it's like any author if anyone's calling them up I'm guessing 
they want to talk about their project, want to talk about their book. And he's been in all these places, but for whatever reason, he's not getting back in touch with me. Everything Rob tries seems to draw a blank. Then, nine whole months after first trying to get in touch with Jeff Platt. Jeff! At last, Jeff's here and he's happy to talk. I'd love to meet you somewhere for a cup of coffee. Rob is now the first journalist to really ask for the deeper backstory. The story behind the headlines. They agree to meet for lunch in Stoke-on-Trent, an hour and a half by train from London. The train journey up gives Rob a chance to reread Jeff's book, The London Underground Serial Killer. According to the cover notes, Jeff Platt, now retired, has had a distinguished career in the Metropolitan Police Force. He'd been part of a crack team of elite flying squad officers. He's been part of a team that took down organized criminals and dangerous killers like the Crays and the Richardsons. But Platt hasn't chosen to write about any of those more famous cases. He's written a book about Kieran Kelly. Ladies and gents, there is now the approach into our next stop this morning, Stoke-on-Trent. For those that leaving us here, please do check that you have all your personal belongings with you. Thank you for travelling on these services. Jeff? Yes? How are you doing, Jeff? How are you? I didn't see you coming in there. Nice to meet you. Rob. I have your book. This meeting is going to be an unusual meeting. Ah, uh, well. <sighs> it's certainly not going to turn out to be exactly what Rob had bargained for. We start to get into our conversation in this first meeting. We're sat in this quiet room just off reception in this hotel, directly across from the train station in Stoke. And, um, I was wondering... We're going to have lunch in a minute, but is there a corner somewhere we could sit and have, have a little talk? You know, I, I think the first thing that strikes me is Jeff's body language. Um, you know, he feels more withdrawn than he was on the phone, you know, a bit quieter, a bit more subdued. And tell me about the, you know, the first time you met Kelly. Well, <laughs> that was at Clapham Police Station uh, in 1983. Uh, he'd been arrested for, in suspicion of a, of, a, of a robbery. They put him in a cell with somebody there and then, of course, he uh, killed him. It was like, even though he'd done all this other media, it was like he wasn't quite used to doing this kind of thing or having this kind of an interview. Can you tell me what your role was on that day? Yes, well, I was a young man, uh, I think, this is 83, so I was 28 years of age. So I was looking to become a detective at that stage, so, uh, you know, halfway through my training, I suppose, and trying to uh, secure the attention of one of my senior officers so that I'd perhaps have a chance for the panels. But after he was up and running with the Kelly story, you know, then he was in the zone. A lot of people talk about talking to serial killers and things like that. It tends to be ten years after their crimes, when they're in the middle of a, a long term of imprisonment. I had the advantage that I met Kelly ten minutes before he committed his final murder. Jeff Platt gets in the zone when he starts talking about Kelly. It all started for him the same day Kelly killed Boyd in the cells at Clapham. After that, it was Jeff Platt who drove back and forth to court and to prison, to all the interviews, 
handcuffed to Kelly in the back of a police van. Somebody had to take Kelly to court every week. We'd drive on blue lights and two-tones through, uh, from Brixton Prison to Southwestern Magistrates Court. That was time spent close up with a serial killer. Time during which Kelly, having no one else to talk to, began to open up. Yes, I got a chance to speak to him, get to know him a little bit, get to understand what made him tick, and I thought I'd write a book about that. What Kelly didn't know at the time, as Platt explains in his book, was that he was also now the lead investigator on the whole Kelly case. It was decided at that stage to just have one person deal with the whole investigation. It was during this time that Kelly confessed to having pushed people in front of tube trains. And it was Platt's job to chase up all the leads. He discussed pushing people underneath tube trains, so I was sent off to look at the local newspaper archives at the South London Press in Streatham. And I started to go down there, and of course you're sitting there with a wall of newspapers, you start flicking through them and you start finding that uh, there are a number of people who've been committing suicide, allegedly, by jumping underneath uh, underground trains. Then when you start reading the articles, you find that they were talking to Kieran Patrick Kelly at the time. And it just carries on, and more and more deaths start coming to notice where Kieran Patrick Kelly has been standing there talking to people when they suddenly decide to launch themselves underneath the tube train. This was a bombshell for the young trainee detective Platt at the time. He takes what he found out back to Kelly, and confronts him, and Kelly tells him everything. So what he was actually doing was he was going up to people that he'd never seen, never met. He'd engaged them in conversation. Um, you know, a, a drunken male approaching you at Clapham Common would probably get short shrift off most people. Uh, they, they would turn away, they would try and ignore him and try and, you know, move away from him. Uh, that tended to push them closer and closer to the, uh, the tunnel. And that's where Kelly pushed most of his victims underneath the trains when they got to the edge of the railway platform. What Platt describes in his book is that all these additional Kelly murders had all been recorded as suicides by the London Transport Police. And there'd never been any proper cross-checks made. This was either due to a lack of due diligence by the officers on the scene, or simply due to the lack of effective methods for cross-checking paperwork back in the 70s and 80s. These killings had simply slipped through the net and Kelly had slipped through with them. It was only newspaper articles that recorded witness statements. And as Platt says he discovered in the archives, the name Kieran Kelly kept cropping up in these articles time after time. Here's Rob again. All this legwork that, you know, Jeff Platt did, he, he said he had paperwork and interviews and evidence that was the height of a man, you know, if you stacked it all on top of each other. A rough estimate would put that at around 25,000 pages of reports and evidence collected by Platt and delivered to his superior officers. Then, suddenly, out of the blue, all Platt's hard work was made to disappear. The investigation was squashed from above. What actually happened was it wasn't the Metropolitan Police, it was the Home Office. The Home Office actually uh, phoned up and actually said that they wanted it uh, 
What period would we be talking about? Oh, this about? is 83, when Kelly was first uh, talking to everybody after the murder in the cells at the police station. Then the Home Office actually then phoned up and said, we've seen the story, we don't like it, we don't want it being discussed. So it wasn't a policeman who actually made that decision. It was actually the, uh, the Home Office that decided that. So the Home Office, which is the UK government department responsible for law and order, decided that the Kelly case, the Kelly killings, had to be covered up. Not just the killings of the homeless men we heard about in the last episode, but also the new long list of tube train deaths that never got recorded as murder in the first place because they looked like suicides. That's how it was possible, says Jeff Platt. It's easier to cover up a murder nobody thinks is a murder. I have to let the full story of the conspiracy, as described in Jeff Platt's book, rest here for now, because I want you to hear what Platt has to say about Kelly himself. Did you see other sides to him in the two years, in oh, the two years that you spent quite talking to him? a considerable amount. Um, I mean, we discussed what made him do what he'd done. It was obviously, you know, interesting to find out what had made him kill a number of people. He told me that he was actually a homosexual. Uh, he'd been told from a very early age that homosexuality was a terrible sin. He told me that when he was uh, a young man, he'd uh, been enrolled in the Roman Catholic Church. He'd also been enrolled in the IRA. So, yes, I mean, he was very, very careful to defend himself and try and protect himself from the criticism that he thought was going to follow. So he's then bolted for London. He'd been there in 1953 for the coronation. And at that time, his friend had, uh, his best friend had said to him, hey, Kelly, uh, about time you got married. And Kelly had panicked about that because he, he heard that as shorthand for, I know your deepest, darkest secret. I know you're practising homosexual. And he worried about that all day long on the day of the coronation. He said he was shaking. He couldn't focus. He couldn't think. And on the way home... They were standing on the underground station at Baker Street and he pushed his best mate underneath the, uh, the tube train. It was the threat of revealing Kelly's suppressed homosexuality that led him to kill his best friend, Christy Smith, in 1953. The killing that started it all. All right, then Mr Brown's going to ask you now about Christy Smith. And go over that again. Here's a clip from Kieran Kelly's confession tape. He's being interviewed by Detective Chief Superintendent Adams and Ian Brown. You usually come back to Christie's Smith, because that's where it all starts. Right, yeah, that's yeah, that's that was I, I would have never I would have never mentioned none of them. But I want I just want to fuck away. You really want to get Christie Smith off your mind, don't you? I wanted to get them all off my mind, right? Yeah, but that's the first that's the big one. That was the one that started, yeah. So did that, that started you on the drink, did it, as well? Or were you already on it? I was on the but I was I was there to hold the thing. I, in other words, I was there to come out of the pub with money in my pocket. You were just a drinking man then, as yeah. opposed to a, an alcoholic? Yeah. He panicked. He realised that Christy Smith knew his family, knew the people he went to school with, knew the people he worked with, knew all the same friends down the pub and everything like this. If Christy Smith went back to Dublin and said, you never guess what, nosy Kelly... He's a, he's a homosexual. 
he's busy practicing with other men and all the rest of it. That would end his life. Everything would come to an end. He'd lose his family, he'd lose his friends, he'd lose his job, he'd lose everything. And the end of the world, as he saw it, would, would be upon him. Kelly's later M.O. as a serial killer was a constant return to this fixation, says Platt. Something that started as a horrifying experience became an addiction for a repressed homosexual Kelly, who targeted men just like himself because he hated them for what they were. Kelly's profile fits right in there with all the famous serial killers, says Platt. His urge to kill was driven by a damaged and twisted mentality. A serial killer usually decides on a group of people that he doesn't like. I don't like, you know, fill in your own word. I don't like women. I don't like prostitutes. I don't like, you know, homosexuals. Whatever it is, there's usually a group that, that a serial killer decides that he's going to eliminate. That's what happened. That's what happened. It seems logical enough, knowing what we all know these days about serial killers and how they do their thing. But there are some things about this story that stick out. It's not immediately obvious how what Platt says about the psychological profile led him to kill people at random. And there's a lot of numbers that need explaining too. Why Jeff lands at 16 original confessions and not the 13, 14 or 15 D.I. Ian Brown said he recalled in the last episode. And of course, Rob is keen to connect with any of the surviving family members of the tube victims who Jeff says have been in touch with him, those seven new cases. So Rob decides to continue the interview over lunch in the restaurant. Oh, I think we have to pay in here. Oh, we pay here first and then go in. Okay, yeah. Yeah, I'll, I'll look after this in here. Right, yeah. uh, can I just pay for two lunches, please? Yeah. At the beginning of this episode, I said that this was going to be a bizarre story and that the meeting between Jeff and Rob was not going to turn out to be exactly what Rob expected. It's about now, as the theme tune to the film The Bodyguard plays out over the hi-fi and the five-pound business lunch buffet slowly fills up, that things start to go off the rails if you'll forgive the metaphor. Jeff Platt is no longer the shy and uncomfortable interviewee Rob met just an hour or two ago. So you were, uh, you were a bodyguard for... Um, you did some bodyguard work at Project. Yeah, well, I've had 500 gun battles. How many? 500. Gun battles? I've killed five. Four with firearms, and one I ripped his nose off with a tire lever. That's difficult to explain. Took his face off with a tire lever. Really? Came at me with a sawn off shotgun. Lost his nose. <laughs> this is when you're on duty. Mm. Mm. So if you do, if you kill somebody with a, a, a firearm that's got Metropolitan Police written on the side, it's, uh, you know, you've got a fair chance of getting away with it. When you actually do it with a tire but at the boot of the car. <laughs> they tend to be a little bit less understanding. And tell me about the ones with the, with the firearms. That sounds fascinating. There mm, we go. The longer this is going on, the more elaborate Jeff's stories are becoming. In the Met, they have a, 
you have dozens of radio channels, yeah? But the, the, the number one channel is called is Channel One. And I got stuck on on Channel One in front of uh, 5,000 sort of officers on a listening watch and told that I was going to be uh, given a court martial. Jeff is just reeling out story after story. 500 gun battles. Five men killed during his career at the Met, including killing one man by taking his nose off with a tire iron. Something that Jeff says nearly led to him being court martialed. Odd facts. Not least that court martials are, as far as I know, only for military personnel. The things he's talking about seem excessive. Highly unlikely, even. But there's more. It seems Jeff isn't fully retired from policing after all. In fact, he says he's still involved in very high-profile police work. I got involved in all that... V- I'm also involved in that VIP pedophile stuff. You know the old Operation Midlands? Oh, really? I was, invo- I was responsible for investigating all those... Uh, Prime Ministers and uh, Chancellors of the Exchequers and Field Marshals and Head of the... uh, MI5 and MI6. You're still involved in that now at the moment, yeah? Yeah, that's uh, that's now... Yes. Oh, so are you not having a drink? I won't yet, Jeff, now, but... But Jeff also seems to have some pretty extreme experiences in his educational work as well. I, I had 10 students murdered in 10 years. I had 15 students a year, 10 of them were murdered, one per year, uh, you know, and stuff like this. We were going out there, I mean, I've had to go out there and defend a few and stuff like this when people have attacked him with knives and stuff like that. I guess I, I didn't know any of this about Jeff and, you know, at this point I'm thinking, you know, this guy has done a few things. It sounds like Jeff has a tendency to exaggerate. Quite a bit. I've, I've nicked a member of the royal family. I've nicked a member of the cabinet. I've nicked a, a four-star general. <laughs> he told me that he more or less wrote the book in a weekend, and um, that he was working on another book. And you know, by the way he was talking, he'd written you know a number of books. Uh, he was just banging them out. Oh, I'm, I'm writing more. I can write a book a week. But um... a whole police inquiry has been opened up because of the revelations in Jeff Platt's book. Newspapers, TV and radio channels have sent Jeff Platt and Kieran Kelly's names around the world. But something about Jeff Platt is not quite right. And what about the, the original interviewing officers after mm. Boyd was killed? Mm-hmm. Would they have signed off the documentation that you were saying your superintendent had said he had a, a stack of files, but yep. only your name was on yep. Why isn't there? Why doesn't their names appear? Well, as I say, <coughs> the, uh, <coughs> there was a. a <coughs> excuse me. Jeff Platt is the only witness to revelations Kelly made about killing random strangers on the tube. Jeff Platt is the only man who claims that there was a cover-up of a London underground serial killer. Jeff Platt seems to be unravelling in front of Rob's eyes. I mean, Jeff, just talking to you over the last couple of hours, you've had an amazing career. I mean, 
some of the cases, some of the crimes that you've been involved in, some of the people that you've got to, met, to meet during your career. Amazing stuff. Why Kelly? Why write a book about Kelly? Why not write a book about something else? I mean, that's the one that caught my imagination. If Jeff Platt has let his imagination get a little bit overactive while writing his book, where will that leave the whole Kieran Kelly story? Find out next time on The Nobody Zone. All you young people, now take my advice Before crossing the ocean, you'd better think twice Cause you can't live without love, without love alone Proofs round the west end in the nobody's home But the summer is fine, but the winter's a fridge Wrapped up in old cardboard in the chair of the crossbow The Nobody Zone is written and narrated by Tim Hinman. Storyline and production is by Tim Hinman and Christopher Molson. Original idea, research and recordings are by Robert Mulhern, Ronan Kelly and Liam O'Brien. With production assistance from Sarah Blake, Donal O'Hurley, Tim Desmond, Nicolin Greer and Michael Lawless. Original music for the series is by Tim Hinman. This episode also featured the song Nothing But The Same Old Story by Paul Brady. The title music is the song Missing You performed by Christy Moore. Graphics marketing impressed by John Kilkenny, Laura Beattie, Amy O'Driscoll, Nigel Wheatley, Frederick Neilbo, Jilly McDonough, Ellen Leonard, Bren Murphy and Anna Joyce. Illustrations by Alex Williamson. The Nobody Zone is a collaboration between RTE's documentary on One in Ireland and third year productions in Denmark. If you wish to join the social media conversation around this podcast, please use hashtag the nobody zone or visit rte.ie forward slash the nobody zone. And if you'd like to comment or share any information you might have on the story, we'd love to hear from you. Email us documentaries at rte.ie. Until next time, thanks for listening. <laughs>